God, source of all light, by your word you give light to the soul. Pour out on us the spirit of wisdom and understanding that our hearts and minds may be opened, we pray. Amen. And as we pray that prayer of illumination, which is another aspect of a more traditional style of worship that I really like, because because before we go into the Word of God, it's always a good idea to really, you know, invoke the Holy Spirit and ask that the Lord might hear, might be heard. Maybe you've noticed whenever I pray the, at the end of the sermon, I almost always say something along the lines of, Lord, just if there's any garbage that came from me, blow it out of their memories and just burn in the stuff that was your voice and your voice alone. And boy, I mean that when I say it. Because what is at work here in our midst is nothing less than the Spirit of God. It's the presence of Christ our Lord. It's our almighty creator. And that's why I made the plea to really worship God together like people who can't help it. Because, because it's a way of saying that there's more here than the sum of our parts. There's more here than... than you know, one preacher who might be uh, more uh, skilled than another. There's a lot more about this than the music or any of the things we do and the quality in which we have been gifted to do them. This is about something where we show up with an expectation to encounter God. And so we pray that prayer of illumination is a way of inviting God to speak to our soul and to let the mind and heart of God enter into the heart and mind of each person here, we pray. So I want to read to you a couple of verses from the Acts of the Apostles. We start at the very beginning of Acts at chapter 1. Some of you probably are aware that this is sort of volume 2 of a work by Luke. The other volume is the one that we credit him with in name, the Gospel of Luke. And he says in the first book, O Theopolis, which is a Greek word that means lover of God, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. After he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs and appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Not many days from now. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. In the book of Genesis, it says that God breathed life into Adam. And it's implicit throughout the entire Old Testament, really, and in the Genesis creation account for sure, that this was the moment when God imparted that part of God's self that was unique to mankind, and I don't usually use language that's been termed as sexist, but if we're going to make sense of what we're reading, then we, what we learn is, is that this word that we have turned into a name, Adam. Adam is a name that eventually stuck after the fall, uh, 
But before the fall, the Adam, with a small a, we'll say, was a word that said the, the man or the mankind. And so when God created everything and said it was good, God then breathed life into one of those creatures, the one he called the man. And then later, after finishing creation, God said it's not good that the man should be alone, and so he created a type from the man. He took the very life that became the woman from the man, and so the idea was that the life was imparted through the breath of God to the man and then through the man to the woman. Now, this is a beautiful, beautiful story that isn't sexist at all. It's about the very relationship between God and the church and how we refer to the church as the bride. And we'll get into that later in this series. But for now, just rest in the fact that this is God's moment of recreation. When God breathes God's very self into the man, into the person that would become all of us. And yet that essence was damaged by sin. And then one day in the upper room, when Jesus breathed on the apostles, it was the same kind of life-giving breath. Now we know this because word studies, and this is why some of us get sent to seminary and get expensive education so that we can tell you things like this. But it's important that you know this one because this is so good. There's only two places in the Bible where these word, where this particular word is used. It's a word called empuseo. Now, if you think about it, it's a word that you're familiar with if you've ever heard of like emphysema, for example, which is a breathing difficulty, right? So empuseo is a word that describes the unique breath of God into humanity. And the only other place in the Bible where this particular use of the word breathe is present is in the upper room when Jesus breathes the Holy Spirit on the people, on the apostles. And so what sin damaged in Genesis, Jesus restores in the upper room. When you receive the Holy Spirit then, Sin is no longer the driving power in your life because your new life in Christ has been birthed by the breath of God, the Holy Spirit. Now, when we were talking in the wilderness wanderings, we often talked about that pillar of fire and cloud. I guess you gathered from the way I describe it that what I imagine is something that looks like the biggest tornado you ever saw, and it has fire in it, and at night you can see the fire. And I find this really interesting because it was, a, it was a, a, an expression of the presence of God among the people that was wind and fire. Bet you know where I'm going with this. Because if you look at Acts chapter 2, the first few verses, 
It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues of fire appeared on them and rested on each of them. There's that wind and fire. The very presence of God, the very essence of God comes with the Holy Spirit. Wherever the pillar and the cloud are, where the wind and the fire are, God is there. But in case you're afraid, you know, that we don't have any wind or fire going on in here and we might find that troubling if we did, it, it, the thing to recognize is, is that it's the Spirit of God that we're talking about. It's the Spirit of God. And, and when the people were wandering in the wilderness, wherever that pillar and cloud were, they were bound to experience the power of God in their lives, and they could do anything. They never wanted for anything. They became a body of people who used to be slaves, not only to the Egyptians, but to the Egyptian culture, and they were transformed into a body of people who became the people of God. And if they could resist the power of that spirit of God, then they were destined to die. Now you might recall that Jesus said that there was only one unforgivable sin and it was to deny the Holy Spirit. Well, it makes sense when you put it in those terms because to deny the Holy Spirit is to resist the very essence of God. And, and it's impossible for some of us, and for me especially, to imagine anybody being able to resist God that way. And yet people do all the time. And in the Old Testament, it usually got them swallowed up by the earth, bitten by snakes, all that sort of stuff that we talked about during that wandering series of messages. And now we're in a series that's based on the Acts of the Apostles. And it's going to allow for the variations between their timings and technology, but really there aren't many other differences. If you really get right down to it, a student of history, and especially the student of scripture, pretty quickly recognizes that human nature stays the same, God's always the same. The only thing that changes is uh, cultural things and technology. You know, so we wear synthetic clothing, they wore pure wool or something like that, something made from cotton, you know, or flax or whatever. And, and so, you know, apart from that, their response to God and ours are the same. Their resistance to God and ours is the same. And so we can learn a lot about ourselves by reading scripture and here as people who are trying to transition from wandering in the wilderness to the acts of apostles or devoted followers of Christ, citizens of the kingdom. We can see through them exactly what we need to know about ourselves. And here's what I know, and I hope you know. There is nothing, absolutely nothing more essential to Christian living than to embrace the Holy Spirit. To embrace the Holy Spirit is to accept this transfusion that drains the poisoned blood of failed human attempts to 
be right in the presence of God. In other words, you, you've always tried to live the best life you could, but as long as sin was more powerful than the Spirit of God in your life, you really never had a chance. And as you embrace the Holy Spirit, you begin to see how the Spirit changes your very nature. And this is the idea. And the nice thing is, is now as Christians, you don't have to die in the wilderness, you just have to die to yourself. See, as you embrace the Holy Spirit as a Christian, you're gradually letting parts of you rot in the wilderness while the real you, the one that God designed you to be, is being primed and prepared to enter into God's promise. It's a much more hopeful and joy-filled experience. And it starts with that confession that admission that you're not God, you never were, you really can't be. Now, now I, I say this almost every week because I've, well, because an old time preacher told me back in early in my career, 25 years ago, he said, son, just remember, give them the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. And it used to be right around the first Sunday in July, I would always preach that because that's the anniversary of my appointment as a pastor. And, but the idea stuck in that I always try to make sure at least once every worship service you hear the essence of the gospel. You're a sinner and there's nothing you can do about it. In your nature is this, this force that re resists God and causes you to resist God. And once you accept that that is a part of your nature and you ask God to, to forgive you for this resistance, then God forgives you. And the reason he forgives you is not because of the power of your apology. You know, think about that one for a minute. Every one of us probably has seen a kid especially, but sometimes some adults where you, they're forced to apologize and they go, I'm sorry, like they really mean it, right? You know, so it isn't about how well you apologize to God. It's about your admission of helplessness over your own flesh. It's about admitting that no matter how hard you try, it'll never ever be possible for you to totally devote yourself to the Lord and resist your own flesh. And this is the power of the sin that entered into the perfect creation so long ago. This is what we call original sin. It's a, it's a naturally occurring sin. And God cures that because Jesus, his son, bore the weight of that sin on his shoulders. That's what we mean when we say that it's the blood of Jesus that washes away our sin. It just means that he was the only person who was as human as we are, who lived in perfect devotion to God, and yet experienced the separation from God that sin causes for our sake. And for him, it cost more than we'll ever be able to comprehend. That happened in the garden, and we can talk about that some other time. But rest assured that God gave the most that God could give in order to redeem you from your own nature of sin. Having done so, all he asks is that you accept his grace. 
which is unmerited favor. Grace is getting something you don't deserve because the one who gives it can't help it. They just want to give it to you. Now, I know you can relate to that because sometimes you do good just because you want to and it doesn't matter whether the person who receives it deserves it. And that is when you're the most like Christ who did that on the cross for me and for you and accepting that gift is the, is the simplest form of redemption that any religion can offer. This is why I always refer to it as universal good news, because many religions offer life after death, but only one offers such a simple solution to the problems that separate you from that promise. So you have eternal life because you've confessed that you're a sinner and you have more life now because it doesn't stop with the profession. And this, my friends, honestly, is what has troubled me the most in all my years of ministry and even before when I was just trying to be the best Christian I could be and loving the Lord with all my heart, mind, and soul. And what I found was is that many, many people treat God as though God is omniscient, omnipresent, and generally inactive. That many people treat God as though God is there as a resource when you really get to the end of yourself and don't know what to do. When you get to the point where you don't know how to solve your own problem in your flesh, then you'll call on God and grumble because he doesn't respond the way you think he should. <laughs> this is a very common interpretation that I've encountered among people who've gone to church all their lives. In the same way they treat Jesus as someone who is a historical figure that they talk of in the past tense and they experience him as someone whose wisdom and power were pretty remarkable. It's too bad you can't find that and see that now. But thank God he died on the cross for me because I don't want to go to hell when I die or I want to have something to look forward to beyond this life. And so again, we're treating him as a means to our ends and we're relegating him to history. But many of us gather in his name every Sunday morning and when it comes to the third person of the Trinity, the person of God that is the most mysterious in some ways and yet the most visibly present, the Holy Spirit, most of us are blind and ignorant. Most of us would rather not do that. I don't know about you, but longtime churchgoers that I've encountered will often joke about those Holy Spirit Christians, you know, the ones they dance in the aisles and they speak in tongues and they bounce around the sanctuary, and, and so it's like, I don't want anything to do with that. And then they call us the frozen chosen. May I say just as an aside that there is nothing I find more offensive than pastors who use the pulpit to criticize other Christians. And it's amazing how many Christians leave their sanctuaries equipped to wound other Christians other brothers, sisters, brothers and sisters in Christ who just don't happen to share your particular culture and tastes. And there's a bigger enemy and a far more powerful enemy that we should all be focusing our energy towards. And yet there are pastors who will stand in the pulpit and criticize me because they hear that I only sprinkle and I don't dunk. 
Joke's on them, right? There's the pool right there. We do dunk around here, but they don't know that, so they tell all their people. So I'm just saying. The Holy Spirit is the unifying force, but he's more than that. He's a person, and I use he with a capital H, and so we won't define the Holy Spirit in gender. But understand that this is a person, the third person of the Trinity. This is God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And the beautiful thing that the Lord Jesus, the Son, has done for us is that he has given that to all of us. Now you don't have to go to where he is to see him. What if Jesus never ascended to heaven? We'd all be trying to make that trip to Israel, or we'd be waiting for the Jesus tour to come to North America, or something like that. We don't have to do anything like that. We simply open our hearts and minds. We say, Lord, fill me with your spirit. Let your, pres your presence be known here. Lord, we're the frozen chosen, so we're a little frightened of the wind and the fire. So, you know, meet us where we are, like the woman at the well. Give us, Jesus, eternal life, water that refreshes for all eternity. But meet us where we are, because we're chicken. And you know what he says? That's all right. I got you. You ever wonder why the Lord allows, I think even cheerfully, all these variations of Christianity? Because the main thing is the same. And the main thing is that Christ died for us while we were sinners, he saved us. That his saving gift of grace, once accepted, cleanses us of the sin that separates us from God, in effect, prepares us to go back into Eden and walk in the cool of the evening with our Creator. And then this Holy Spirit of God, the very breath, the impuseo, enters into us like baptizo, which is a total immersion. It's a soaking the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It soaks you. Baptizo is a word that is used in Scripture to describe baptism, and it means so saturated that it's dripping. It's, you know, it's like a sponge that you put in the sink, and it's so full that it drips with the excess. And that is how we're supposed to experience the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit. And like I said, don't worry. I've been doing this for a long time, and I'm going to tell you right now, I've never seen somebody pray for the Holy Spirit and then become something that wasn't okay for them. Our Lord is gentle and kind and gracious, so desperately in love with us. Remember what I said at the beginning about how God created the woman from the man? It's a picture of the church, the body of Christ. It's a picture of how God created from God's self the bride and then spent all this time saving the bride so that he could take her back to his house. And that's you. That's me. That's the spirit-enlivened people of God. Unfortunately, many of us walk the perimeter of God's kingdom with one foot in and one foot out. I met some kingdom people last week and I was powerfully 
affected by their presence and the, the kind of conversation we had. And a couple of them said they were kind of mystified that I was a pastor in a major denomination serving in an organized, established church. And I said, you know, what if God has called some of us to the perimeter? to bring the people who have one foot in the kingdom and one foot out all the way in. Here's your call. Come on in. The water's great. <laughs> Come on in. All the way in. And don't look back. Embrace the new life in Christ that is the Spirit of God breathing in you a sort of life that begins now and ends never. Don't lean into the kingdom, outside the kingdom anymore. Don't lean into the world anymore. There's nothing there for you. It's just stuff and things and politics and riots and, and conspiracy theories. And it, it's a world where nothing really ever satisfies your flesh, where you always need more things, where you always need more food, where you always need more, 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 more. And then when you die, you leave it all behind. He invites you in to an eternal kingdom where the riches are beyond imagination. Where the promise is eternal. There's no time, no space. There's just a temporary, short-term existence capped by an eternal glory as we move all the way into the presence of our Creator, and eventually, our Creator who is running towards us like, like the prodigal's father. Anybody read that on Wednesday? We, we welcome our sinfulness and embrace it like the prodigal son who says, you know, I'm not even worthy to be a slave in my father's house. But if he'll have me, I'll be his slave forever. And so he runs home to his father only to find as he crests the hill that his father is running towards him. And this is the story of creation. The father is running towards his children, which is the Maranatha thing that we're looking for, the thing we're waiting for. We're waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus. In November, we'll start talking about that quite a bit. And what we're going to find is that we run towards him only to find that he's running towards us. And so whether this side of paradise or on the Lord's side of paradise, we will find that time is coming to an end and he is bringing it up on his heels as he runs toward us. And we run toward him. So we're going to embrace that New Testament, actually, apostles' understanding of what it means to be a Christian in the next several weeks. And I hope you stay tuned and join me. And if you want to talk more about it in depth, join me for the Sunday school class that will follow in just a few minutes. And uh, remember that if you're online, I sent you the notes. And if you're not getting these things, you can send me a message and I'll make sure you get them. But for now, let us pray.
Almighty God, thank you for your word. Now burn upon our hearts those things that came from you and you alone. Whatever trash came out of my mouth, Lord, just blow it off of their minds like sawdust or waste or ash and leave behind only that which is you and you alone. For your glory and for praise of your name, I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.